You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Our text um, is going to come out of Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, and the title of the sermon is, Go and Learn What This Means, and it's straight out of the passage. So let's look at our passage, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, notice they don't go to Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12. But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Amen. So we see this confrontation that the Pharisees have with Jesus and his disciples. I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about the Pharisees, who they were, where they came from. To be a Pharisee in the ancient Jewish world, it was not like a religious clerical position. It wasn't like to be a priest or something. I think that's where a lot of these Jesus movies sometimes steer us wrong. When you see these Jesus films that come out, sometimes you'll see Pharisees depicted and they're always like in these priestly religious garments as if they're all priests or something. And that really wasn't the case. Now I'm sure there were some priests who identified themselves as Pharisees, but actually it might surprise you, the vast majority of Pharisees we're just everyday ordinary people. Just, we might call them blue collar people. The Pharisees were um, part of this religious political party, if you will. It was because it was all the same thing in Israel. All religion and politics, all of that kind of went together. And so it was sort of like a religious political party, a, a movement. And the Pharisees were all about taking Israel back for God. You see, for many, many years, for centuries even, Israel was in a very dark place. They had been ruled over by foreign pagan powers, going all the way back to 586 B.C. That would be a good date for you to memorize, because it's a very important date. That's the, that's the year that the Babylonians conquered Judah, and Jerusalem in particular. And ever since that day, from 586 B.C. on, Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. They were ruled over by the Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Seleucids. Now, during the time of Jesus, the Romans are in charge. And there was a lot of lack of morale. They realized this is not the way it was meant to be. This is not, this is not the golden age that God promised to our ancestors. And yet through those centuries, the prophets, the Israelite prophets, would speak about this coming time when God is going to intervene into our history 
And God's going to set this thing right. And no longer are we going to be under the yoke of oppression, but God's going to raise up some kind of saving king, this Messiah figure. And somehow or another through this Messiah, God is going to once again restore the kingdom and usher in an eternal reign of peace that will never come to an end. And this Messiah will rule and reign the entire world forever. And so they were looking forward to this golden age that the prophets had foretold. But the Pharisees, like all of Israel, the Pharisees had a particular vision for how they believed this was going to come about. Unlike the Zealots, you know, the Zealots were another movement at the time, and the Zealots believed that all of this is going to come about by violence. God wants us all to take up swords, form a militia, because at some point the Messiah is going to be raised up and we're going to go to war and put our enemies in their place. That's how the zealots believed that this kingdom was going to come. The Pharisees said, no, it's not going to come like that. Rather, they believed somehow it's going to come through our own moral purity. In other words, if we, Israel, can just be morally pure enough, and if we could just keep the law strictly enough, somehow or another, that's going to be the impetus that's going to trigger God to move and intervene and usher in this eternal kingdom. So they believed it was going to come through moral purity. So watch this. The big problem in Israel from the Pharisees' perspective was sin. Not their sin. They were blind to that, but it was the sins of others. In fact, we can narrow it down to two particular groups of people. From the Pharisees' point of view, what's holding God back from moving and what's holding Israel back from seeing this beautiful kingdom come about are the sins of two groups of people. Number one, we might call them the irreligious irreligious Jews who have abandoned Jewish faith altogether. They're Sabbath breakers and law breakers. And the most notorious kind of person that belonged to this group is the tax collector. I mean, tax collectors, not only have they abandoned religious practice, they're collaborating with our enemies, with Rome. So the first group is the irreligious. The second group of people that the Pharisees viewed as being the problem were the immoral and this would cover, you know, a wide range of people, but certainly the most notorious would be prostitutes. And so the Pharisees believe that these are the kinds of people that are preventing God's kingdom from coming. This great spiritual revival that we're looking forward to, it's the immoral and the, and the irreligious who are holding this thing back. And so the Pharisees held great disdain for these groups of people, and they did all they could to avoid them. They separated themselves from them. In fact, that's what the word Pharisee means. It means to separate. And they believed separating from these vile sinners, this is what God wants us to do. The irony is that when God in the flesh shows up in the person of Jesus Christ, he has the exact opposite posture. And these very kinds of people, tax collectors, prostitutes, the irreligious, the immoral, these are the very people who find a place at Jesus' table. 
And he he embraces it and he welcomes them to his table. He's not going to leave them like they are. But as they are, he, he, he welcomes them. And they flock to Jesus and they find something satisfying about being around this man. This man's not repulsing us. He's not rejecting us. He's got open arms and welcoming us into what he's doing. And as soon as Jesus begins this practice of radical hospitality, it sets him on a collision course with the Pharisees where they are now going to conspire to murder him. That's how deeply opposed these Pharisees were. These these people who think that above everyone else, we represent God and we represent God's heart. In reality, they are diametrically opposed to God's work in the world so that when God himself shows up in the world, they immediately begin to conspire to kill him. And what fueled the Pharisees was certitude. They were absolutely certain that they were the righteous ones. They were certain they had the Bible on their side. They were certain that they had God on their side. God is not on the side of Jesus. God's on our side. And sadly, this phenomenon has been repeated many times in Christian history. It's not just something that we can saddle upon the Pharisees. As we look back over the years, we can identify the same dynamic amongst the Christian crusaders, the Spanish Inquisition, Civil War Southern Baptists. You see, the one thing that all of these groups had in common is that they were certain they were right. They were certain they had the Bible on their side. And they were certain that they had God on their side. So here's the big question I want to pose to you today. How do we keep this from happening to us? I mean, do you ever wonder about that? Our capacity to deceive ourselves? That we could actually do that to ourselves, convince ourselves we're working for God and actually be diametrically opposed to God. I mean, it's easy to see with hindsight, when we look back upon the Pharisees and the Crusaders and the Inquisitors and slavery promoters in the church, it's easy to identify it in those kinds of people. But how do we keep that from happening to us? Is that a question that anybody here is interested in? When you observe this dynamic, these judgmental, sanctimonious, finger-pointing jerks, (laughs) let's just say it like it is, who among us would also say, man, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to fall into that trap. I don't want to deceive myself. But how would you know? How do we keep from falling into that trap? Well, I think I have an answer. And it comes right out of this passage. Look at verse 13 one more time. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So if the question is, how do we keep that from happening to us? How do we avoid falling into the same trap as the Pharisees, the Inquisitors, the Crusaders? How do we avoid that trap? I think the answer is, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So the way that we avoid falling into that trap is we learn, what does God ultimately want from us? What is God really after? 
what is God's vision for what our lives can and should one day be? Let me put it to you this way. God is begging for mercy. God is begging for us to become merciful to one another. God is pleading with us, be merciful to your brother, your sister, to one another. Now, mercy is not all that God wants from us. I'm fully aware of that. Mercy is not all that God wants from us, but mercy is to be the guiding principle for our lives. Let me explain it this way. If you are not a merciful person, if you're not becoming a more merciful person, if you're not on that trajectory, there are a lot of other things about you that can be right. You can have sound doctrine. You can have pristine theology. You can have all of the right opinions on all things theological, political, social. You can have all of the right positions. But if you are not a merciful person, you yourself are wrong. So yes, there are things that God asks of us and expects of us beyond mercy. But mercy is to be the guiding principle. It just like astounds me that it's possible that the Pharisees could be so certain they're right and they're wrong. The Crusaders could be so certain they were right and they were wrong. The Inquisitors were certain they were right and they were wrong. So the question is, how do we avoid the same fate? Because your own blind spots are not obvious to you. I mean, that's kind of the point. You don't know when you're wrong. But I think I found a way out of this conundrum. And I want you to listen to this statement. You may still be wrong in some areas, but they will be relatively minor if you establish as the guiding principle of your life, mercy. In fact, I'm going to take it even further. If holding a certain opinion or perspective, whether it's over a political topic, a theological issue, a social problem, or maybe it's just within your own household, your own workplace, if, if holding a certain opinion or perspective on something causes you to be less than merciful towards others, I would instantly hold that position with deep suspicion and probably just suggest that you abandon it altogether, or at the very least, set it aside and say, you know what, I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about on that one. Because when I'm thinking this way, when I'm having that opinion, it makes me less than merciful. See, if you can learn to just ask that question as you go through life, what is the merciful thing to do? And allow mercy not to be everything, but to be the guiding principle for your life, then as you come upon difficult topics and, and situations, whatever else may happen, you won't become a Pharisee. And to that, I think we can all say hallelujah. Because as we're going to learn in a moment, that's the one kind of person for whom there's really little hope. Look at this passage in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, 
His disciples were hungry, and he began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest and the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Boy, I tell you what, that would have fried their brains right there. Something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Boy, that seems to be a favorite verse of Jesus. Hosea 6, verse 6. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here you have Jesus walking through a grain field with his disciples. It happens to be the Sabbath, and they're heads of grain, and the disciples pluck some of the grain, the heads of grain, and begin to eat the grain. And the Pharisees pop up out of nowhere. It just amazes me in the Gospels. It seems like they're just hiding behind every bush. And they pop up and they say, oh no, you're not, he's, they're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. They're doing labor on the Sabbath. This is against the Sabbath rules. That's one of the things about Pharisees. Pharisees love to make sure everyone else is following the rules. In essence, that is their religion right there. Their religion is making sure everyone's following the rules and staying within the proper theological lines. They are the self-appointed moral and theological guardians of the world. It may actually be the only fun they get out of life. All right, so the Pharisees were certain. I want to keep stressing that word to you. Certain that the disciples had violated the Sabbath just as they were certain that Jesus had repeatedly violated the Sabbath. That's one of the things that'll hit you in the face when you're reading the Gospels over and over again. Jesus, <laughs> it's almost like Jesus purposely waited until Sabbath to heal people. Like he wanted to do it on the Sabbath. And he wanted the Pharisees to lose their minds because he's trying to disrupt it. He's trying to turn it upside down and shake them loose of their perspective. Like, like, like he's in the synagogue in Capernaum, early um, math, uh, Mark chapter 3, and, and there's a guy there with a withered hand, and Jesus heals the guy. And instead of the Pharisees going, wow, this is wonderful. This guy's been set free from this horrible affliction. Let's celebrate. They say, wait a second, you can't heal people on the Sabbath. Now, remember the whole context of why the Sabbath even existed. For 400 years, God's people were in bondage, slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, where every single day, from sunup to sundown, they were worked to death, making bricks. Seven days a week. You know, if you're working seven days a week, the word week no longer has any meaning. It's just become your life. And for 400 years, these people are defined Work, 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 no rest, no moment to stop, no refreshing, no vacation, no day off. Their whole life is work. 
And they cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And through the miraculous hand of God, they are rescued from bondage in Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea on dry ground, headed towards the promised land. And on the way, they stop at Mount Sinai where God gives them the law. And right in the center of the Ten Commandments is the commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And I think among other things, what's happening there is God saying no longer are you gonna be defined by work and how many bricks per day you can produce? No longer are you gonna be controlled by this oppressive Pharaoh. No, every seven days you're gonna take a break. You're gonna rest and refresh yourselves and it's gonna be a reminder to you in this rhythmic cadence that you are not Pharaoh's people, you're my people. You're not brick makers, you're worshipers. And you're going to rest in worship with me. And you're going to enjoy that day. So it was really a gift of mercy to Israel. But not only that, God is very explicit and says, if you've got slaves in your midst, if there are foreigners among you who aren't even Jews, they're going to have the day off too. So Sabbath was a gift of mercy and also a practice to form Israel in the way of mercy. But the whole heart and intent of Sabbath was to benefit people, to benefit human beings so that they could have a, a regular weekly reception of God's mercy and a formative practice of mercy. So you see what the Pharisees have done is they've taken this beautiful gift of mercy called Sabbath, and they've actually, with their extraneous Sabbath laws, they've turned it into a mechanism to be unmerciful. They've taken God's heart and intent behind the Sabbath, and they've turned it inside out. This is why I'm telling you, mercy needs to be a guiding principle in your life. Mercy. We don't always know what truth is, but we almost always know what mercy is. We don't always know what the truth is. I know some people that think they do. Well, I know what the truth is. I've studied this word and I've, I've got it figured out. I've got, I've got perfect sound theology. It all makes sense. I know what the truth is. Well, the problem is I can find an equally committed Christian who at least on a third of those opinions disagrees with you. That's why we have debates. That's why people write books. That's why scholars have arguments over what mode of baptism and the layout of the end times and how to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 and what the meaning of the word justification is. All these different debates happen because we don't always know what the truth is. But we almost always know what mercy is. So if reading the Bible doesn't make you a more merciful person, you're reading the Bible wrong. In fact, if you read the Bible with a pharisaical spirit, the Bible will actually make you a worse person. And you'd probably be better off if we took it away from you. I'm dead serious too. There's this quote from, from the novel Wuthering Heights and every time I see this quote, it's just like, wow. But the author of the novel describing a certain character says he was the most self-righteous Pharisee ever to ransack the Bible, to rake the promises unto himself and fling its curses upon his neighbors. 
You ever known somebody like that? Man, that, that is not what we want to be. If your understanding of God does not make you more merciful, you have misunderstood God. And the telltale sign is how we relate to our enemies. If your relationship with God does not incline you to become more merciful towards your enemies than you otherwise would be, you have misunderstood God. If in your dealings with others, you think God wants something more from you than mercy, you are wrong. You say, well, Ryan, God wants me to straighten that person out. Okay, let's, let's assume that's right. I'll go with you. Let's say God does want you to straighten that person out. But if you think that God wants you to straighten that person out more than God wants you to show them mercy, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here's a way to transpose that into our day and age. If your religious practices, worship, prayer, scripture, fasting, tithing, or any of the things that you do, if your religious practice doesn't make you a more merciful person, a great tragedy has occurred. Finally, at the end of his life, Jesus, he just lays his cards on the table with the Pharisees. You see it in Matthew 23. There's this place where, where he just goes off on the Pharisees. And I just want to give you a little bit of a taste at it. Uh, look, look at what he says here in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you Pharisees who cross land and sea to make a proselyte. You know, you convert them to Pharisaism. But in so doing, you make them twice a child of hell. Wow. He uses this word proselyte. This is, this is a Gentile who has been converted to the Jewish faith, but, but the Pharisee version of it. And what Jesus is saying is, look, when they were a pagan Gentile worshiping idols, they were a child of hell. But then you guys got a hold of them and you got them into your brand of religion with its cruelty, its meanness, and its judgmentalism. And you've actually made them worse off now than they were before. They'd be better off if they were still a pagan Gentile. That's some strong words. No wonder he got crucified within a few days. So if your religious practice doesn't make you a more merciful person, a tragedy has occurred. And folks, these tragedies happen all the time. This is not theoretical. I've witnessed it over and over again in my life. Where in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Bible, in the name of Christianity, a person just somehow or another becomes a child of hell, heaping hatred and scorn on anyone who doesn't hold their opinions. Remember, the only person, the only class of people with whom Jesus was unmerciful with were the unmerciful. That's kind of a clumsy way to say it. Let me say it better. Only the unmerciful are far from the mercy of God. Only the unmerciful are far from the mercy of God. That's why the, the fifth beatitude is so good. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners, no doubt about it, we don't endorse their sin. I'm not endorsing being a secularist and embracing immorality of any kind. Not endorsing any of that. But I'll tell you what. Do the Gospels? 
Those are the kinds of people who find the mercy of Christ. Why? Because they know they're broken. They know they're sinners. There's, there's no self-delusion. They know they're messed up, and they know Jesus can fix it. And so they throw themselves upon the mercy of Jesus. And we find Jesus saying this in our passage, only the sick need a physician. And then he just says, well, I'm just going to say it like it is. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if a person was sitting there listening to Jesus and says, I'm not a sinner, I'm a righteous person, Jesus says, knock yourself out. Fine. Move forward with your life, but I don't have anything to say to you. I don't have anything to offer you. If you're righteous, just go be righteous, but I don't have anything to say. I don't, I don't have anything for you, but sinners I have something for. So it seems to me the first qualification for becoming a disciple of Jesus is to first be a sinner. How many of you qualify? <laughs> you're already halfway home right there. Jesus is the doctor for people who are sick with sin. If you're not sick with your sin, if you're a righteous person, then you don't need Dr. Jesus. If you're a righteous person, then you don't need the medicine of mercy, so none will be given. But if you know you're a sinner, if you know that you're sick, and by the way, every last person on this planet fits that description, well, then you know what you need. I, I need the medicine of mercy. And what God wants to do is not only give you that mercy, but he also wants to form you in mercy so that you can go forth as a healing agent in the world, receiving and giving. See, that's what mercy is. It's like a river that flows. It flows to us. It flows through us. It's a cycle. But the moment you say, no, I'm a righteous person, or the moment you say, no, I refuse to give mercy, it stops the flow. And so all of these practices that we emphasize here, attending a service, worship, communal worship, prayer, scripture, fasting, giving, tithing, all of these practices, they only have value insofar as they are forming us into merciful people, people that are increasingly looking like Jesus. But they don't have value in and of themselves. That ties back to our, our message last weekend. Religion is a mechanism by which the Spirit of God can transform us. So here's the question you should ask. If you ever feel stuck, if you're not sure if you're growing spiritually, if you want to do some self-evaluation, here's a great question to ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit. Am I becoming a more merciful person? Am I growing in my capacity to give mercy to my enemies? And don't fall into the trap. Be careful about pitting mercy and truth against one another. You know, people sometimes say, well, I'm not a mercy person, I'm a truth person, as if you can only be one or the other. You know, the psalmist says mercy and truth are to kiss. They are to be lovers. They go together, not to be pitted against one another. Have I given you enough to think about? Amen. Close your eyes. Bow your heads for just a moment. You might even just put your palms on your lap in a receptive posture. And Lord, we just want right now, we take a moment to just experience your mercy that's pouring into our lives. I want you to right now just experience God offering you mercy. 
every last one of us, to some degree, we're all messed up. We're all damaged. We're all broken people. And we don't have to get ourselves fixed to be a recipient of the mercy of God. In reality, it's actually God's mercy and God's presence living on the inside of us that empowers us to get our act together. So as you are right now, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, as long as you're able to recognize the truth and be authentic and real with God, knowing that apart from His mercy, you don't have anything to stand on, if you're, if you're able to comprehend that and accept that reality, then that makes you a candidate for God's mercy. And so just receive it right now where you are. I'm not asking you to feel anything. I'm just asking you to acknowledge it in your own way. God, thank you for your mercy in my life. I receive it. You might even just say that under your breath. Lord, I receive your mercy. And God, as we make time to uh, experience that on a regular basis, may we also be formed by that same mercy. Just as we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. May we join Jesus on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Lord, right now, there may be a relationship in these lives. There may be a particular person who has harmed us, who has brought great hurt to us. And I pray, Lord, for the capacity. Help us, form us in mercy. Form us, whatever that looks like for each person. We give you permission. We don't know how we're going to get there. But it's not our job to figure out the how. It's our job to just invite your spirit to do a work in our, in our hearts and minds. And may we just cooperate with that. But we give you permission, Lord. Lord, form me in your mercy towards this person. Form me, form me in the way of mercy. Help us, God, to increasingly grow in Christ-like character. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.